Hi and welcome back to The Art Bystander. My name is Roland Philippe Kretschmar and this is a very special episode opening up 2024 of The Art Podcast. Uh, with me today I have an iconic guest, Sharon Stone. And Sharon Stone is an Emmy and Golden Globe winner, Oscar-nominated cinematic icon and recognized activist and international humanitarian. WHO Global Health Ambassador, United Nations Global Citizen Award winner 2023, a Nobel Peace Summit Award winner. Sharon was also an AIDS field worker for over 30 years, working with such organizations as AMFAR, Elton John and APLA. And Sharon's career as a visual artist has resulted in exhibitions in Los Angeles, Connecticut, soon Berlin and San Francisco. And she's currently participating in an art lecture series with Pulitzer Prize winner Jerry Saltz. So this is Sharon Stone and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. What an introduction, hey. <laughs> so I get overwhelmed by introducing you. Um, but what makes me really, really excited is uh, our shared passion for for the arts, fine arts, visual arts, and this is really what I would like to focus on today. So what does visual artist mean in your context? I mean, what do you do as a visual artist? Well, uh, I paint with acrylic paint uh, and watercolor paint and sometimes oil stick. And uh, I love it. <laughs> Um, when I'm on the road, I take watercolor blocks with me in my suitcase and I paint these smaller watercolor block uh, paintings. And when I'm at home, I paint rather gigantic uh, acrylic paintings. My suitcase, I think about, when I say suitcase, I think about when my kids were little, I have three boys. I adopted three boys, I'm a single mother. Uh, and my one boy always called my suitcases my soup cases. <laughs> when I was when he was little so I always think of him as my soup cases like I was a soup salesman um, uh, yeah so that's what I do I sell soup <laughs> <laughs> so how come you went for acrylics is it because of the convenience or is is it uh, I mean can you it's elaborate because they dry quickly yeah mm -hmm. and um I really like to move quickly. Um, mm -hmm. My ideas and my movement happens really quickly uh, when I'm working and I really love the modernity of acrylics. I love it. Um, I think when, as, as I continue to age, um, I will probably move into oils when I am older and I paint with live nude models. Um, mm -hmm. But I think if I, particularly because it's me, if I started with nude models, people would make a dramatic <laughs> episode out of that right <laughs> off the bat. So I'm not even going to get into it uh, until I'm much more established because it would be too, too compromising for me as an individual person. So I'm going to just establish myself with acrylics and I will move into oils as my career blooms. Well, it makes sense. And also, as you say, I mean, you travel a lot, so bringing acrylics and painting on the go is, is obviously much easier than, than using Yes, and, and really for the paintings, the type of paintings that I really like to make, which are abstract uh, impressionism, paintings and landscape paintings, it's really, I think, the best for what I'm doing. Um, I think for the portraiture that I want to do later in my life, I want oils because oils work very, very well for the skin. Hmm. So obviously for most of the people that would listen to this podcast or even you know, out in society would know you as an act actor, actress, um, and also about your contributions to cinema uh, and maybe your ventures into fine art is something new to them um, to, to my listeners as well so I'm obviously curious to 
understand where did this start originally? I mean, I, I assume this okay. is not something that you kind of discovered recently, that this is part of who you are as a person. So it would be interesting to understand the journey. Oh, yeah, my aunt, my aunt had a double master's in uh, painting and uh, literature. And she taught me to paint when mm -hmm. I was little, when I was a kid, little, little, little kid. And so painting has just been, is a part of my natural language, like growing up with someone who speaks another language. Uh, so painting was something that was very much a part of my life and childhood and part of my, my growing up. So it's really within my comfort zone. It's just something uh, that's very natural to me. It's something that's very comforting mm -hmm. to me something that's very it's a place of peace for mm -hmm. me a place of prayer mm -hmm. in fact meditation place so how did you then end up doing acting instead of painting <laughs> i never thought i could make a living as a painter mm -hmm. um i was painting when i lived in new york and i lived down on elizabeth and houston uh, when I was a kid in the 80s, uh, in the very early 80s, and, you know, it wasn't pretty down there. <laughs> mm. um, we were all just a bunch of starving artists, and I really started working as a model, and I made a ton of money working as a model. I started out making $5,000 a day, mm. and I got signed by Eileen Ford to be in those days, it was before they called us supermodels. Mm -hmm. I got signed to be in the front of the book, which was called Special Bookings. Mm. It was before they had, before, you know, Christy Turlington and Cindy and all of those girls broke mm -hmm. out and they called them supermodels. Um, but it was in the days right when Jerry Hall and uh, those girls were first meeting the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. Right when I went into the office to be signed by Eileen Ford was was the actual day <laughs> that those girls had first go, gone out with the Rolling Stones and they were yelling through the agency, oh my God, Jerry's on the phone. She went out with Mick Jagger and it was like this big thing in the agency the day that I went in there. It was really funny. Mm. Um, so there was this section in the front of the modeling book that was called special bookings for those of us who made more money and we didn't really do fashion shows we did all this stuff it was called beauty mm -hmm. so we did cosmetic ads and diamond ads and hair care ads and jewelry ads and really the high-end high-paying uh, mm. things so sometimes i'd get booked for a job in the day and a job in the night and make 10 grand in a day and that kind of dissuades you from pursuing a path as a starving painter. Makes sense. Makes sense. Mm. But did you paint during those days? I mean, did you continue to paint when you were a young I did adult? a little, but I also found that my friends there really wanted me to be the painter's model. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I got very quickly shoved out of the being in the painter's group. And I ended up being more of a writer mm -hmm. uh, when I was there. I, was, I had gone to college on a writing scholarship when I was 15. And I left school, I quit school when I was 18 and went to New York. And so I was still painting, but painting, you know, painting supplies were really expensive. Um, I don't know, it just seemed like I got shoved sort of out of painting in the natural river of life. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, I joined this thing called the Poets Society. And I ended up writing poems and short stories mm. and modeling. And then I went to the new school in New York while mm -hmm. I was modeling, just because it was kind of boring. <laughs> and I started studying philosophy. Did you like the new school? I liked being in class. Hmm. And I like studying. 
you know, we each had to take a, just a philosophical point of view. I took existentialism because nobody wanted it. And it was really very illuminating to me to take this perspective. And it freed me so much to study this perspective and to come to an understanding of this construct and this idea of the world. And I think it was very helpful to me while being in that sort of decadent, super, super decadent period in the world because it was all Studio 54 and Quaaludes and everybody going crazy uh, in New York and Europe. And they had so many models that were little kids, you know, 13, 14-year-old girls. And it was a really weird, dangerous, decadent period that I can say still informs my art right now. Yeah, this was my, my question, really, like, because I, I really understand the way you describe your art practice as meditation. So I'm thinking, like, how, when did you start to meditate again through art? I think always, in a certain way, I, you know, even when I came, finally moved out here and I had an apartment with a couch and that was about it, mm. I would put on music and paint and just sit on the floor and paint and listen to music. I was a real Chet Baker fan and <laughs> I would listen to Chet Baker and paint and listen to my old 40s jazz music that I like so much hmm. and paint. It was always a little bit, you know, always something that I did a little bit, you know, sketchbooks on set, painting a little bit, drawing, drawing in books and drawing in, uh, I've always drawn etching and painting and I'm a gigantic art collector. I'm a, hmm huge collector of art. Um, and did you start collecting when you were making this modeling money or did it come later? As soon as I uh, made Basic Instinct, I started really collecting, okay. like serious, mm -hmm. seriously collecting. Do you remember the first pieces you bought? The big first big piece on Basic, on basic Instinct, I bought uh, Tamara Lempika's um, painting Wisdom. Okay. And then I bought uh, Basquiat's painting Potomac okay, fantastic. with the, first, the very first money that I made. I bought those two paintings hmm. because I, was, uh, I spent half of the money that I made on the paintings. And everybody That's thought I was crazy because I didn't really have anywhere to put them, <laughs> you know, because I was uh, my house. Potomac covered the only big wall I had in my house. It was like ridiculous. It was the entire wall of my house. And people said, were like, why did you buy that weird graffiti painting? Why do you want that weird painting? Because it was no one, no celebrity, no one had bought Basquiat paintings at that period. And no did one- Did you know him personally or how come you- Because I had lived in, you know, the areas of New York mm. where he was living and mm. I lived with the other artists where he was living and we all knew he was the best. Mm. We all knew he was the king and but he was the king of all of us grubby ghetto art you know trying to make mm. it people and um, we all kind of lived in this part of NoHo that wasn't even nice you know we lived in this terrible area and we all were struggling artists together and we were all kind of friends you know we all kind of lived in these terrible walk-ups you know that were awful and we lived in this kind of this ghetto art community and we all knew he was so far superior to everybody we we all thought like this is the guy man this is the guy mm. and Andy Warhol's even paying attention to him mm. and but no one nobody in the big world was getting him you know what I mean yeah and so the minute I made money I was like I am buying that painting I'm buying that big painting and when I bought it 
everybody was like, Sharon, why would you spend that money on that crazy bunch of boards with that weird graffiti on it? Like, are you, what did you do with your money? Are you crazy? And I'm like, well, I like it. <laughs> and then the very next time I made money, I bought another one. <laughs> So I did you have a strategy time. for your collecting or did it just kind of grow organically? I or? just did what I felt, you know, I, you know, I wrote to art news when things were coming out that I thought like, I really need that Cy Twombly, you know, mm. I really have to have that. <laughs> like, I know probably nobody else really thinks those scribbles are cool, but like, I have to have it. <laughs> like, mm. it's me, me, I want that. You know, and so I bought paintings, you know, that probably people thought were like, what the fuck are you insane? <laughs> you know, why do you need to have this bullshit? And, but I needed it, you know, I like, it's not like I wanted these things. I needed them. Mm. Like I needed them more than I needed to have clothing more than I needed to put money away to eat, more than I needed to secure my future. I needed these paintings, like I needed them. And people really thought I was just crazy because I had the tiniest track house on the planet. And I, I was just like, you know, and then I bought a de Kooning and Everybody was like, de Kooning is just this, he's old, he's not painting anymore. You know, he's not even popular. And I'm like, mm. you know, and then I bought like a Louise Nevelson sculpture and she was still alive. And I'm like, but not for long, <laughs> you know. So how much but have like, you sold throughout the years or have you, well, have you kept everything? Or? No, because, you know, we've had COVID and we've had actor strikes. And so I've had to, over the years, sell my Calder mobile. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> um, and I've sold my Rufino Tamayo. And I sold my Magritte red drape painting. Fuck. Um, <laughs> and I sold my Kandinsky. And what else did I sell? Um, yes, I've sold some of my beauties, you know, to live and to function as a starving artist yet again, because every now and then we starve again to stay being a starving artist. And then when I make these kind of rash decisions to become a painter, of course, I have to pay for it. So I just sold two Bateros. I sold a little horse sculpture, sculpture and I sold the most charming Batero of the devil flying, the naked devil with his giant penis out, uh, flying a, a woman off her rooftop. And she's quite <laughs> delighted about, about it. And I sold that. I sold those two paintings to get us through the actor strike. Um, so yes, I, I do sell them and I, I say goodbye to them with a lot of love, but sometimes, you know, you just don't get to keep your Calder mobile as long as you really hope you would like to <laughs> when there's been, you know, three years of COVID and an actor strike. Sometimes yeah. you're like, well, we really like spending time with you, Mr. Calder, but see you <laughs> later. So when did you feel the moment was right to go deeper into the practice of painting? I mean, kind of really starting to evolve as an artist. Well, you know, I make my children paint. I make everybody mm -hmm. paint in my household. And if I show you the paintings that my children have made, I think, which I think I'm going to do, I think it'll, mm -hmm. it'll help you have a greater understanding because each of my kids at the school that I sent them to, when they get to, I think it's like the fifth grade, they have to dress up like a painter and bring a painting that they painted as painting painter that they like. 
And my one kid did, of course, Van Gogh mm. in the fifth grade. And my other kid did Manet. They're fabulous. They're just fabulous. Mm. And I think a big piece of it is because they grew up being surrounded by art. You know, they grew up having great art, being surrounded by great art. And they're not afraid to express themselves. And I think that expressing yourself and knowing that there aren't mistakes in art, that it's really okay to take these chances and try it out and see how you do. I think my children feel quite free. And my one son, when he was little, 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 like first grade, I got called to the school because they were all supposed to make cut out snowmen and put teeth and buttons. And um, my kid <laughs> didn't make the snowman like the other kids. He made the snowman have a black face and he was putting something different that wasn't like the other kids. And so they called me into the school and said, maybe there's something wrong with your kid and your kid should make the snowman like everybody else is making the snowman <laughs> to demonstrate that he has correct mental health. Okay. And I said, no, no, no. My kid is gonna make the snowman and express his own artistic perspective and we're going to let him make this no man that he wants to make. And you're not going to tell my kid how to make his art. That's not how, that's not what art is for. How did they respond to that? Oh, shocked. But I wasn't going to make my child conform with his art. And so I sat down with my kid and he said he wanted to put other buttons on the snowman. And I was like, let's do it. And he was like, and I don't like the teeth. And I said, do you want to make metal teeth? And he said, yeah. And I said, let's give the snowman metal teeth. And he was like, yeah, mom, let's give him metal teeth. And I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> and he wanted to make like a punk snowman. And I was like, let's do it. That's so cool. Let's make him like that. And the teacher was so disturbed that I wanted to not only allow, but encourage my child to make his own snowman. Because the whole point of school, apparently, is to make all the children turn out like a matching set of Pop-Tarts. Yeah, and <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> and well, it is and it isn't, I think, because truly, I think that Society so often just really wants to make us all the same. I think we have to allow that, that bell curve. We have to allow for artists to exist in society. We have to allow the joy of expression and the uniqueness of the individual, or what's the point? What's the point of living? You know, we're Isn't all... that the problem with the art industry itself? Also, that as, as an artist, especially in, in North America, you have to have an MFA, preferably from Yale. You have to you know, exhibit in, in certain galleries to be accepted. I mean, there, there's no it's an open-mindedness to, towards Well, and you have art. to have a penis. And, and you have to have a penis, yes. Mm. There's this sudden thing where we're going to accept women, but the majority of it is we're going to accept women if they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, terrific. And I think people are a little bit nicer to me because I'm older, so they know I'll be dead sooner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's morbid, but yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> morbid, but true, but true. Mm -hmm. I think because I'm 65, there's at least hope for me. <laughs> I'm 65 and I've already had a stroke. So, you know, the odds are good with me. <laughs> the odds of supporting me are pretty good. <laughs> so, I mean, if I understand it right, it, 
your kind of um, venture back into the practice of painting came a lot through your children. Through my children? Yeah. My children are unbelievably cool. Mm. And mm. I, my kids are very, you know, my kids see the truth of being an artist, whether it's an actor mm. or a writer or anything, you know. And my kids know that my truth is that we live in our happiness, that we follow our joy, that we don't try to please people by making ourselves super unhappy, and that I don't need my kids to fulfill some kind of personal uh, piece of me that's unfulfilled. I don't need them to be like me or, you know, Aunt Kelly or their grandpa. You know, I don't need them to fulfill some unfulfilled piece of my life. I need them to be who they are, fulfill themselves, find their own interests, do what makes them happy, but that their happiness is the key, not mm their place in society, not my happiness, but their happiness. And so um, we, they encourage my happiness. Mm -hmm. And they know how much I am happy as a painter. Mm -hmm. And they see <laughs> that <laughs> I look happy, my, my comportment, my beingness has dropped a lot of weight. My soul is good. I'm even ready to go back to work as an actor now, really ready to go back to work as an actor mm. because I have something to bring. I'm filling mm. my own well. My life is joyful. I don't just have this sense of everybody's everything being the gas station for everyone's everything. I feel this sense of this is something I do for me. And that's beautiful. I mean, it's fantastic to hear this. And obviously, I'm then curious to understand where you where do you find your inspiration? Is it from within yourself purely or? Yeah. How much do you uh, take in the outside world uh, in, in, in your paintings? I mean, it's from my experiences. Um, I always laugh with my studio manager because I have this deeply childlike part of myself that comes into the paintings. And I have this like old Japanese man that lives inside me. <laughs> and so I will make two paintings in the same day and I'll make one that looks like a six-year-old little girl made it and then I will take a break and make another painting and I have one that looks like an 80-year-old Japanese man made it and it doesn't <laughs> look like these two people even share a studio space or know each other in any way and it makes no sense at all that the same pa person painted these two paintings and these paintings could not be in the same show. But I have these two wildly, wildly desperate uh, types of paintings. Um, and who is the real Sharon? Is it the eight-year-old Japanese man or is it the six-year-old girl? They both equally come yeah. to me. Um, but this Japanese thing is so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. The paintings are so beautiful. Hmm. Um, and the eight-year-old me ones, the paintings are like sort of a takeoff on Miro, uh, like a Miro Calder Kandinsky mashup. Uh, it's very much that period, very, very much that type of thing. Um, 
with a little bit, I would say, of that Picasso, Afric, African mm -hmm. yeah. period tossed mm -hmm. in, maybe. Um, but I'm very influenced by that Magnificent Eight, for sure. Very influenced by that group. Love that group of painters. Just dazzled me to no end. And I'm so impacted in my style by those painters. Uh, but can I ask you, when did you exhibit the first time? Um, it's not that long Yeah, ago, this right? crazy thing happened. I, mm. I have this great friend and uh, I made her a painting for her birthday. And it was a four by six foot painting, which is a little mm. like a meter by two meters. And uh, I took it to her birthday party and she's kind of fancy and had a lot of very chic, fancy friends at her party. And I had it wrapped in brown paper and she said, oh, let's open it. <laughs> and we opened it. And then when I was trying to leave the party, all these people came and they wanted to commission paintings. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't know how you do that and what you charge. And they're like, how much are they? <laughs> and I just started making up prices. $30,000. I just didn't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, I was like, $30,000. And they're like, okay. And how long would it take? And they're just like, okay. And how do we do it? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and so there were like all these people at the door trying to get me to do commission paintings. And I was like, I have to go. And then 10 days later, I got offered a show. And that's how it happened. Mm -hmm. I didn't plan on having a show. I didn't know what was happening. And my show was, was okay, but it was super disorganized. And um, then I got this show in Connecticut that's still running. Mm -hmm. It keeps extending, they keep extending it. Um, and it was pretty much the show of all of the best paintings that I had. And at that point, I probably had 60 paintings. And um, now this German show is actually a show I painted to be a show. Okay. It's a consistent yeah. show with a consistent theme. So it's the first show that I'm having <laughs> that's a show with a consistent theme, okay. where it's not just a show of, hey, this is what I've been painting in my studio, hope you like sure. it. So tell us more about this, the theme then. This theme uh, of this show um, is called Totem. Okay. And it's in that totemic construct and it's stories. Each of them is a story about a variety of different places and experiences, places I've been, things I've seen, experiences I've had in a totemic structure. And how many pieces will you exhibit? I think we have 13 pieces or 15 pieces. Yeah, and it's it's in Berlin and it's opening mid-February, right? Right. And um, are you nervous? You know, this is hard for me to know because I've been so long in the acting world that my nerves become part of my motivation and part of my uh, engine. And I don't experience them as much like nerves. I experience them like energy and mm -hmm. excitement and enthusiasm and motivation and all of the things I've turned them into over all the years. So mm -hmm. I don't really experience nerves like a debilitating thing so much anymore. Uh, but let's say if I rephrase myself, I have, do you feel... I guess some anxiety because I really feel or naked as a painter. strong about like making sure the delivery is happening, making sure everything gets done on time. I'm very hyper-organized, so I put my nervousness into that. 
like making sure the business aspect gets done, the contracts, the lawyer, the delivery, the pickup, the everything. I get very hyper, hyper focused on that stuff. Uh, and I put my nervous energy into being hyper businessy. Um, okay, so can I ask you, do you feel more yeah, vulnerable or naked as a painter uh, if you compare it to acting? I mean, you say that you're maybe not nervous, but still it's, it's a different you that, uh, that you're well, showing the world. You know, you gotta remember, I was the girl in Basic Instinct. And <laughs> I don't think that you can get ripped apart any more than I was already ripped apart mm. or exposed any more than I've already been exposed mm -hmm. or learn lessons any more than I've already learned about dealing with critics and public and the press and continuing to hold the line about being an artist and your intentions. So I've really, I've already learned these lessons. Do you know what I mean? And I've learned mm -hmm. them the hard way. I've learned them the hard and difficult and um, attacking me as a human being, not me as an artist or my artistic choices, but just me personally. And I've been punished personally for making the choices I've made as an artist. I've been attacked personally for making my artistic choices. I've been ridiculed personally for making my artistic choices. So um, how high can the stakes be? You know what I mean? I had my child taken away from me in custody because they thought I did sex movies. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've paid every price for being an artist. So what can you tell me now? I'm untalented? Well, fuck you. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I am untalented. I may be growing as an artist because I have talent and I'm going to get better because I'm devoted. I am not um, in any way just an observer of art. You know, I write song lyrics. They become number ones, number fours. I write a book, it's sold in 22 countries. I've made movies, they've been hits around the world. I am an activist, I've changed the trajectory of illnesses. I, I'm a devoted person. I am, this is my, I don't know what you call it, it's my vocation. Sure. Art yeah. is my vocation, it's my life. I collect art, my house looks like a museum. I, it's covered in, you know, paintings and pottery and sculpture and woven rugs and, you know, furry chairs and, you know, blankets from South America and pieces of fabric from India, you know, and uh, Aboriginal fabrics. And, you know, I'm just, I'm an artist. That's the way that it is. And so I'm going to keep doing art, I'm going to keep making art in every conceivable fashion because that's me. I'm a 360 artist and people will say all sorts of things about all sorts of whatever you do. My goal is to move people emotionally, to mm -hmm. reach out and make people feel with humor and love and intrigue and mystery and sharing of my own uh, experiences and pain and whatever else I can bring into this arena of the artistic experience. And so, of course, I feel vulnerable. The only vulnerability is the center of the artistic core. Mm -hmm. But do I feel frightened about my vulnerability? No. Do I know there's going to be pain and suffering? Yeah. That's a part of the journey. But do I hang on to pain and suffering? No. Because I think you have to have been in pain to be an artist. I don't think you have to be in pain to be an artist. I agree with that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And when you look into your own um, 
future. Do you have any ambitions connected to your art practice or will you just go with the flow of life and see where it takes you? Of course I have ambitions. I mean, I'd like to be the greatest artist on the fucking planet. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a good ambition. Hello. You know, I'm addicted to winning. You can't even talk to me without knowing that. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody, a lot of artists are addicts, but I'm addicted to winning. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like to win. I like to, I like to be successful. That's my, that's my, you know, <laughs> I'll have more of that, please. You know what I mean? I'm not the one that wants to be addicted to drinking or heroin. I'm like, I like to be addicted to success. You know, I like to be good at things. So I like to really work. I'm, you know, I've got that blue collar work ethic and I can't shake it. I love mm -hmm. to win. I love to work hard, you know, long hours in the studio. Yay! Um, more paintings. Yay! They need more paintings. Yay! You know, they want you to be on also on a limited series and deliver two shows. How am I going to do that? Ooh, it's exciting! <laughs> you know, I, you know, that's kind of what I'm, you know, I can't love a bigger challenge more, you know. I'm that person. I never have too many challenges to like crush me. I like it. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, so will you be the executive producer of this movie while you're painting for two shows right now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, I get all jacked up with that. You know, that's like my buzz. So mm -hmm. that's where I get my thrill, you know, and I always like to get everybody moving too, you know, you can't get that done. Let me, let me make you get it done. <laughs> yeah, you can. So what does, um, what, what do you mean by being the world's greatest artist? How can you rate art in that manner? Oh, I think that's more like just a phrase, but you know, I would like to be, um, the artist that people are like, Oh, I got a Sharon Stone painting. Mm -hmm. It's in my living room and you should come over and see it because we love it. We love it. And it makes us really happy. And look, <laughs> it looks great with our couch. <laughs> you know, look, we did our living room. We got new pillows. It just, oh, our life looks so great. It looks so great. We want to get another one. We're hoping to get another one. You know, I mean, just like I want people to feel like I feel when I get a painting and I'm like, you know, when I first moved into this house, I bought a Degas mm -hmm. of, a, of a portrait of a woman uh, bather. And it was the first thing I bought. And I didn't even have furniture. I had a chair. <laughs> and I made dinner and I had like a TV tray. And I opened a bottle of wine and made dinner and I put the painting on the wall and I sat in my chair with That's my fantastic. TV tray and I had dinner with my Degas and I was like, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any furniture and I can't afford any furniture, but it's me and Degas and we're having dinner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and I would like someone to feel like that. Like I got this, I don't have a couch, but I have a Sharon Stone and we're having dinner. <laughs> Look at that. You know, I'd like someone to feel that kind of oh, excitement and sense of place and like, look at that painting and it's so exciting and it's mine. The same way I felt when I brought my Basquiat home and everybody thought, mm -hmm. what do you have that stupid graffiti painting for? And why do you want that stupid thing? And I was like, cause I've got it and I wanted it and it's so great. And now it's worth millions of dollars and everybody's like, I still don't understand that. And I'm like, you don't have to. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> right. So what, what would you recommend a young, a young artist, like emerging artist or, you know, as art student or what would you advise them in, in their artistic kind of journey? You know, just, you know, like I was the one in my art class where my teacher would like hold up my painting and say, she, Sharon did the thing 
this is what, why, you know what I mean? I would take weird risks and I would do things that I thought, this is the way I see this, you know, and 95% of the class was doing something very different than what I was doing. I was just doing my own thing. And what I would say is do not try to be like the rest of the class. And when people say they don't understand what you're doing, great, great, fantastic. Because you don't want to be the thing that already happened. They don't need to be able to compare you to someone else because that already happened. You know, it, like for example, it's never been really easy to cast me because I'm so different than other actresses. But clearly, when I do get cast, there's a reason, mm -hmm. right? And this is what I anticipate with my painting. It's like, is she good? I don't know, I think she's good, but it's not like somebody else's, which is what you want. You want your paintings to be recognizable only to you as yours. Mm -hmm. And then your style will grow within your own vision. You know, my vision wasn't, I, I, my teacher told me I'd graduated from acting class. And I was like, no, 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 I didn't. I didn't get it. It's not good. And he said, the only thing you didn't do were the men's classes. And I don't, why would you do that? And I said, that's clearly what I need to do because I didn't get it in the women's classes. And I came back and I took two or three more weeks of classes. And then I got basic instinct because I had to take the men's classes because all the scripts are written by men. All the women's parts were written by men. They're all written from the men's perspective. They're not written by women for women. So women never understand what the hell you're supposed to be doing because they're not written by women, about women, for women. So they're never written in any way that real women are. So until I took the men's classes, I didn't understand what the hell anybody was trying to say about women. Then when I took the men's classes, I understood, oh, these are all just sort of men in drag. And they're played from the men's psychological point of view, right? And so when I was in the Basic Instinct movie, I was like, oh, this is about showing men how they act. This is about revealing men their own fucking behavior. This is just a mirror of your own bullshit. You know, this is mirror, mirror on the wall, you know? And I had to learn by taking the men's class that principally 90% of what we do as an actress is mirroring back the man's blah, blah, blah. It isn't demonstrating anything about women or it's about running around in a servile position. It's one of the two. And it took, me it took me taking the men's classes to understand and that either they should hire me to play a man's part, you know, the fed, the cop, the judge, the, all these things, because they're all written by men to start with. They're not written from a woman's perspective, so how would we know what the hell we're supposed to be doing? And it really, really helped me tremendously. And so it really took painting for me to be able to start expressing the feminine perspective mm -hmm. and get my own perspective onto the canvas enough that I felt centered again as a female soul mm. and ready to go back to work. However, the part I just got cast, the two parts I just got cast in are masculine characters. Interesting. Hmm. I just got cast as a auto mechanic and a, a person who calls fistfights. <laughs> okay. So like, you, you know, you're, you know, I'm these 
roles were, are not really written for the actual woman. I understand it so much clearer now. Why? And then if they want a female perspective woven into it, the woman is trying to push out in this male-driven society, out of her like valence masculine mask. So is, is that if we are, let's say, trying to conclude your artistic kind of mission, is that to express your feminine side currently where you stand at the moment? I was able to shed, that's why my first show was called Shedding. I was able to mm -hmm. shed so many experiences onto the canvas and continue to be able to do so that I'm getting to this, this is where my vulnerability is. And it's a gift and a good thing. It's a beautiful thing that I'm finding this beautiful vulnerability. It's a good thing. It's not like it makes me feel too vulnerable. It makes me re-find my vulnerability. Well, thank you, Sharon. This was a fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you for sharing your, not only your view on art, but also your view on life, existence, and how art can be an expression of your true inner self. Uh, I think that comes across in your paintings and in all the <clears throat> endeavors you do in art, uh, whether it is uh, as an actress or as a painter. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and also, Thank you for opening up about vulnerability because I think that plays an important role in, in many artists' lives. Um, so th this was the Art Bystander uh, episode 20 with Sharon Stone. Uh, I will share links to the exhibitions that are ongoing globally with Sharon's work in the show notes and uh, on the website. And thank you so much for uh, joining the Art Bystander, Sharon. Thank you.